the Astrocast. It's me, your host, Drew. It's uh, Tuesday, February 27th, 2024. It's uh, been a nasty few weeks here in Charlotte. I, uh, I've had a hard time recording this week. I got to tell you guys, I'm going to just be very upfront and honest with you. Um, I take most of my inspiration for this podcast uh, based on my time under the stars, and I have not had any time under the stars in about three weeks now. Um, I know that's not you know uncommon for a lot of people in various parts of the world that may be listening. In fact, there might be some of you that say, man, three weeks, that's nothing. We go three months without seeing the stars. But you know, uh, for me, when I get my time under the stars, whether it be you know, as simple as in my front yard, in my driveway for a couple of hours or in my Zen place when I'm down at the observatory, you know, an hour and a half outside of the city looking up at the Milky Way. That's kind of my reflection time. That's when I really kind of find peace within myself. And when that time gets interrupted for, you know, long periods of time, it really can wear on me. And I've found uh, it's kind of wearing on me lately. That combined with just the regular stresses of life that we all go through, um, it can be tough. And, uh, you know, you can only do so much post-processing on your old work before you're like, man, I want to get out there and, you know, get my telescope set up and, and do some real work under the stars. And I just haven't had the opportunity to do that. Um, I did last night. I got out around 7.45 p.m. local time. And I got to see the uh, Tiangong Space Station. That's the Chinese space station, for those of you who do not know. Um, it flew overhead at magnitude 1.2, I believe it was. It was very bright. Um, it was only visible for about 25 degrees in the sky, and it was very odd where it cut off. It looked like it was about to run into Rigel, uh, and then it just kind of disappeared. And I thought maybe it was clouds. I'm, I'm not really sure. I couldn't see any clouds, but that's all I could figure because I know, you know, obviously any satellite's going to get behind the atmosphere or, you know, the sun at some point and disappear. But it was just an odd place in the sky for it to cut off. I wasn't expecting that. If you haven't seen the Tiangong Space Station yet, highly recommend you check it out. Um, I actually recently switched from Android, or I'm sorry, from iOS back to Android. And I found um, the ISS app on Android called ISS Detector actually includes the Tiangong Space Station as well, which is pretty cool because the one that I was using on iOS only did the, uh, the you know, uh, Zarya ISS, the American one. So kind of a cool little thing to check out if you'd like. I love seeing the space stations. I, it never gets old to me. <laughs> I'll go to my wife and say, oh, come outside the space station. And she's like, I know I've seen it, honey. And uh, But to me, it never gets old. Just wanted to uh, take a moment real quick and thank uh, Rick Basham uh, for joining us last week on the podcast. I really enjoyed sitting down and talking with him at the observatory that's where we met. If you didn't know, uh, if you didn't get a chance to listen, if you if you haven't heard that interview yet, I highly encourage you to go back and listen to last week's episode. I got to sit down with the director of the Gale H. Rigsby Observatory, which is the home base for the Charlotte Amateur uh, Astronomers Club down in Kershaw, South Carolina. It's a really really amazing place. Like I said just a few moments ago, it's really my happy place in the world uh, where I like to go and 
you know, find peace and everything. And I was able to sit down and talk with him uh, for a good 45 minutes, just about all things astronomy, what it's like to be a director and all types of things. So I thoroughly enjoyed having that conversation with him. And we're definitely going to have him back on the show at some point. He actually had mentioned to me that he would like to have uh, him and his business partner, Jeff, who is a, another great guy who I've met several times uh, on the show so they can discuss uh, their company. They actually started a really cool um, astrophotography slash astronomy automations company where they do like fully automated setups to the point where you don't have to press a button and then the next morning you have data. So really cool stuff. We'll definitely have him back on the show soon uh, to discuss all of those things. Um, but in the meantime, uh, I got a few things I want to talk about today, and I, I kind of struggled a little bit, like I said earlier, this episode coming up with a topic, uh, but I think I've got a pretty good idea of something that we can discuss today. Uh, this is going to be an episode more for amateurs that don't have a ton of experience. I have seen a lot of people ask questions lately about taking photos of the Milky Way. They want to know how it's done. They want to know what gear is used. They want to know, you know, how much do I got to spend, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought it would be a cool idea to have just a thorough guide from step one to step whatever it takes, explaining exactly how you can get an incredible photo of the Milky Way. So we're going to do just a single exposure, and then we will also discuss how to do stacked exposures, and uh, we'll start from the beginning. All right, so let's talk about gear first. And before we even get into cameras, the first thing that you'll need to consider is a tripod. So tripods are kind of the bedrock for Milky Way photography in a lot of ways. If you don't have a good tripod, you're not going to get a good shot. And unfortunately, on the market today, there are a lot of really cheap tripods that are just very flimsy and unstable. And a good tripod will allow you to do a lot of different kinds of astrophotography. Uh, you can do star trail photography. You can do Milky Way photography. Heck, if you get a good enough tripod, you can use it to eventually put a uh, German equatorial mount on top of and then use that as your, you know, main astro rig tripod. But if you get one of these cheap, you know, $30, $40 uh, plastic or sometimes aluminum uh, tripods that are extremely lightweight and flimsy. It's just going to be a bad time. So I would recommend that you do some research on what kind to get. Um, I will recommend a couple of brands to you. Um, I actually got really lucky. I have a, a tripod that my wife bought me for Christmas a few years back, and it's by a brand called Raubay. That's R-A-U-B-A-Y. I know that's kind of like one of those weird Amazon off brands, I think. Anyway, I haven't heard of them before this. And it's a liquid head tripod with a 20 pound uh, capacity. And it is just rock solid. I absolutely love this tripod. It extends quite a bit. It goes up to, I believe, 72 inches uh, tall. So, you know, if I want to put my uh, star tracker on top of it, I can easily get it to a height where I don't have to squat down to do a polar alignment, which is something I really like because I don't have great knees. So that would be an excellent choice. And then anything from small rig is a really, really good choice. Small rig I find makes excellent 
gear for very reasonable prices. You know, they do have some really expensive stuff too. If you start looking at things like carbon fiber tripods and what have you, uh, but you know, poke around a little bit and have a look, read reviews, obviously. Um, you can check YouTube for tripod reviews. That's always a good idea to have a look around. And I will, uh, in the show notes, post links to a couple of good tripods. So uh, once you have a good tripod though, um, that brings us to our next point, which is going to be whether or not you are going to need a ball head. So a ball head is a piece of hardware that basically attaches to the top of your tripod and allows you to attach your camera to it quickly using like a, a Vixen dovetail clamp style uh, locking clamp. And it allows you to adjust your camera in any direction that you want. So, you know, you might have your tripod perfectly level at a, uh, you know, perfectly flat angle and you want to angle your camera more upward to look at, you know, whatever you're looking at in the night sky and the ball head is going to allow you to do that. So uh, some tripods have what's called a liquid head. In fact, uh, the one that I mentioned earlier, the Raubei uh, tripod that I own, it actually has a liquid head built in. And if you have one like that, you don't necessarily need to have a ball head. If you can attach your camera directly to the liquid head, you can actually move that and adjust it, you know, however you like. And that can be quite nice if you're wanting to manually track things like the moon. A lot of times when I'm doing like uh, lunar photography, I will be able to slowly track it by loosening up the clutches on the tripod and then slowly moving along to track the moon. Um, but whether or not uh, you decide to go that route kind of just depends on which tripod you get. You don't have to get a tripod with a liquid head. It is not even close to being a requirement. Uh, but if you don't get one with a liquid head, definitely get yourself a good sturdy ball head. Again, small rig would be an excellent choice uh, for the ball head if you wanted to purchase one. iOptron, actually, they're a uh, Astro company, obviously. They make a really good ball head. It is kind of pricey at about $70. Prices for ball heads are kind of all over the place. You can get one for 20, 30 bucks, and then they can go up into the several hundreds of dollars, depending on how high of quality you want to get. So, uh, you know, spend what you want here. I, I would say, you know, as long as it's rated to hold at least 20 pounds or so, you know, your DSLR plus a good bit of weight, um, you should be in pretty good shape. So don't worry too much about spending a ton of money on the ball head, but make sure that it is, you know, rock solid. Obviously, if you're going to be putting your camera on top of it, you want to make sure that you get a high quality one that's not going to come loose on you when it's sitting up there, you know, taking a whole bunch of shots one after another. All right. So you've got your tripod, you've got your ball head, and now you either are going to, you know, mount your DSLR or mirrorless camera to that ball head, or perhaps you have a smartphone and that's what you want to use for your Milky Way photography. That's perfectly fine if that's what you have and that's what you want to get started with. However, if you are using a smartphone, you are going to need one more type of adapter. And specifically what I would recommend, it's going to be the uh, Ulanzi metal smartphone tripod mount. This is a really great metal, well-built, solid mount for holding your smartphone. So the reason I got this is I recently purchased a uh, Galaxy S24 Ultra and I switched over from iPhone from a couple of years back to Android. And I got it just because really I wanted to go back to Android and the astrophotography mode on the phone kind of 
enticed me a little bit. Um, it's it's not incredible by any means, but it's a pretty cool feature to have. But I wasn't about to put my $1,300 phone on a cheap little plastic mount. So I wanted to make sure I got something that was high quality. And this particular uh, smartphone tripod mount is very high quality. And it actually has a cold shoe mount on it as well, which is quite nice if you want to mount a microphone to it. And it's a Arca style release plate. So you can you know clamp it down with the vast majority of a uh, tripod type. So um, that's very, very highly recommended if you're going to use a smartphone. Uh, I've used other types of smartphone tripod mounts in the past. And honestly, I, I just wouldn't recommend them. So I'm going to put the note for this one uh, in the show notes, uh, the link rather in the show notes. Definitely check that out if you're using a smartphone. So if you have that plus a ball head plus the tripod, that's going to be everything that you need to start with Milky Way photography. Alrighty, so we've covered uh, what you need besides obviously a smartphone uh, if you're going to be doing Milky Way photography with a smartphone. And now I'm going to cover what is needed if you want to go the higher end way, which is with a DSLR camera or a mirrorless camera. Uh, so first, let's let's cover what the difference is between a DSLR and a mirrorless. So uh, DSLR is a slightly older technology, but it is still very widely used. In fact, I'm sure there are more DSLRs out in the wild than there are mirrorless cameras just because that technology has been used for so long. Whereas mirrorless uh, cameras, as the uh, name implies, do not have a mirror that flips up and down like a DSLR does. And that is a, a more recent technology that has gained a lot of momentum over the last five years or so. I think they've been in production for at least 10 years, but really in the last five years, they've taken over. Uh, I know Canon and Nikon have hugely brought up the production of their mirrorless systems in recent years, and uh, they're pretty much exclusively making mirrorless mount cameras at this point. So um, if you wanted to get a, uh, a mirrorless camera to get started, uh, there are a couple of routes that you could go. I personally am a Canon user, so I would recommend looking into to the uh, R system of Canon cameras. So you would not want to go into something like the, uh, I believe it's the EFM mount, which was a uh, short-lived mirrorless mount that Canon first came out with. I think it's EFM. It was their first uh, mirrorless mount, but they basically abandoned it for the R mount. So you could check out like the, uh, the Canon EOS R. I personally own the R7. There's also the R5, the R10, et cetera, et cetera. And it really just depends on what your budget is. Um, for about a thousand dollars, you can get the full frame R10, which is like a, uh, a entry level mirrorless full frame camera that Canon offers. That would be an excellent choice. If you're like me, I'm a wildlife photographer, so I like to have an APS-C sensor and we'll cover what that is. So I have the R7, which is an APS-C sensor, and that basically just gives you more reach. So just to briefly cover the difference between full frame and APS-C, APS-C basically gives you what is called a crop factor of 1.6 times. So basically picture a rectangle and then picture zooming in on it 1.6 times and then you can see the difference between 
full frame and APS-C. Um, so basically it's the same photo, but you're zoomed in a little bit closer on it. So this may or may not be a good thing for astrophotography, particularly when we're talking about Milky Way photography, because we want to have a wide field of view when we're looking at the night sky. Now, that being said, there are lots of lenses that are made specifically for APS-C cameras. So when you're looking at them and you're reading like a uh, 16 millimeter lens, that same 16 millimeter lens is going to look different on a full frame versus an APS-C camera. So I'm not going to get too much into depth about the, the differences uh, between those because we could frankly go on all day long about it. Uh, needless to say, it's great to use a tool like Stellarium, which is something that we've covered before, uh, to see you know exactly how wide your field of view will be with any given camera and lens. That is a free tool. I'll put it in the show notes um, that you can download and use to see exactly what any lenses field of view will be in the night sky. All right. If you didn't want to go mirrorless and you wanted to go for a uh, more budget friendly camera, Canon does still make their Rebel series of cameras. I believe they're up to like the T8 at this point, which is an APS-C sensor DSLR camera. These are great. They're very affordable. Uh, they have a lot of great built-in features like, you know, Wi-Fi and SD card support, etc. These are excellent cameras. I think you can find them on sale for about 500 bucks brand new, oftentimes with two kit lenses built in. Uh, that being said, I would not recommend those kit lenses for astrophotography, and we will talk about why here in a little bit. Um, but luckily, there are some really great lenses that you can get for very, very little money if you know where to look um, that can give you excellent results in astrophotography. So the first company that I would recommend that you look into uh, for astrophotography lenses on a budget is going to be Rokinon. Rokinon, and sometimes known as Sigma, those are are kind of interchangeable names depending on what country you're in, uh, make really great lenses. Um, they're usually manual lenses and they range anywhere from, you know, extremely wide 7.5 millimeters up to, you know, telephoto lenses of 135 millimeters or more. And when I say 7.5 millimeters or 135 millimeters, you may or may not know what I'm talking about. So let me just briefly explain what that means. Um, the millimeter scale on a camera lens refers to the focal length and that is what is measured in millimeters and so this essentially determines what your field of view and magnification is for your lens so a lower millimeter number like 24 millimeters for example indicates a wider field of view that's going to capture a lot more of the scene but your objects will appear smaller so that's ideal for things like landscapes or capturing a large group of people like at a family reunion or in our case a large portion of the night sky whereas as a, a higher millimeter number, like 200 millimeters or more, is going to be a much narrower field of view for zooming in on distant subjects and making them appear larger. This is really good for things like nebula or galaxies. So you might want to have 2,000 millimeters for a very small galaxy. You might want to have 16 millimeters 
if you want to capture the entire Milky Way. So for our purposes today, we are talking about Milky Way photography. So we don't want to look at the lenses that are 135 millimeters or 200 or 600, etc. We want to focus on the more wide angle lenses. So the, you know, the 10 millimeters, the 16 millimeters, maybe even 24 millimeters. Uh, you can technically, if you're using a full frame camera, I believe a 35 millimeter lens can get a pretty good shot of the Milky Way. Uh, but personally, I like to use uh, you know, a really wide angle lens when I'm doing the Milky Way. It gives me the opportunity to get a cool subject in the foreground, which is something that I find to be incredibly important when doing Milky Way photography. If you've ever seen a great photo of the Milky Way, I think nine times out of 10, it'll have something interesting in the foreground. Uh, as cool as it can be to have just a shot of just the Milky Way by itself, uh, unfortunately, it's never going to be as interesting as, you know, having something in the foreground, even if it's as simple as just the silhouette of yourself looking up at the Milky Way, adding that little bit of depth uh, to the photo gives you so much more interesting imagery in your image. And ultimately, that's what we want to go for when we're doing things like Milky Way photography. So I would like to recommend sticking to the uh, the wider angle lenses like, you know, 16 millimeters and even lower. And, uh, you know, for me, I own a couple of ultra wide lenses. Um, I actually own a 16 millimeter uh, Canon RF lens. That's a pretty good lens, but it has a lot of chromatic aberration, uh, which unfortunately, you know, can leave your stars not for very sharp and kind of purple around the edges, etc. I find that the uh, the manual lenses from companies like Rokinon and even uh, TT Artisans is another company that I haven't mentioned yet, but they make some really awesome lenses for honestly just absurdly low prices when compared to other lenses on the market. Uh, they make some some just great stuff that can can take excellent Milky Way shots. Now, one thing we can briefly touch on is. Uh, manual focus versus autofocus. And when we're talking about Milky Way photography, we really don't need to worry about autofocus. A lot of people go shopping for lenses that are new to photography and they get super worried when they see manual only lens. And that's understandable because if you're new to photography and you're, you know, walking around taking pictures of your dog and your family, etc. you know how important that autofocus is because it's difficult when subjects are coming and going and moving around, uh, you know, to keep them in focus. However, with something like the night sky, it is focused at what we say is infinity. So if you look at any lens that has manual focus, it's got a bunch of numbers on it. And at the end, you will see the infinity symbol. So with, uh, you know, night sky photography, we want to manually focus to infinity and then you have to lightly tweak it from there to get the stars as sharp as possible. Uh, so you might move it a smidge to the left or the right, depending on the lens. And then you really don't have to touch it again, depending on if the temperature changes and some other factors. But it, it's not something that has to be constantly adjusted like you would with, you know, an autofocus lens when you're taking pictures of your pets, for example. So don't be scared if you see manual only lens. It's perfect 
perfectly fine to buy a manual only lens for astrophotography. It's going to be uh very unlikely that you're going to need to worry about something like autofocus. All right, so what lens specifically uh, would I recommend for newcomers into astrophotography that want to do Milky Way stuff? So, you know, it, it really depends on what your budget is. Uh, what you're going to learn in photography really quick is that lenses are expensive. And when I say expensive, I mean very expensive. Lenses can easily get into the several thousands of dollars range very quickly. Uh, me personally, the my dream lens, if you will, is close to $20,000. It's a wildlife uh, super telephoto lens that Canon makes. Um, I'll probably never own the lens, but I can dream. Um, glass is expensive, you know, and if you want to get good high quality glass, you usually have to pay for it. Now, that being said, we are quite lucky in our hobby because there are a lot of very affordable lenses. And when I say affordable, I mean compared to other lenses on the market. You, you might still gawk at some of these prices that I'm going to throw out. But when you look at the value that you're getting when compared to a lot of other lenses, they are extremely affordable in comparison. So uh, I mentioned Rokinon or Sigma, depending on what country you're in earlier. They make a excellent 14 millimeter F 2.8 wide angle lens and it comes in pretty much every mount that you can imagine. Uh, I believe directly on their website it goes for around $370. I've seen it on sale for close to $300 in the past. Uh, so if you keep your eyes open and depending on which mount you want to get it for, whether you're on Nikon or Canon or you know, depending on which mount you're on, you might be able to find it cheaper than that. Um, so definitely keep your eyes peeled for that. So it's a uh, it's a great lens. 14 millimeters is very wide. So you're going to be able to capture a huge chunk of the night sky. This is a manual only lens. So you do focus it yourself. Uh, but again, very easy to focus this lens to infinity. And then you really don't have to mess with it after that. Uh, it includes a lens hood, Rokinon. It makes extremely well-made lenses. It's all metal. Um, so you really can't go wrong with that. The next lens that I would recommend is actually by a company called TT Artisan. So they make a lot of really cool lenses for very little money. And I actually really enjoy some of their fisheye lenses. So I personally own the TT Artisan 11 millimeter F 2.8 fisheye lens. This is a super cool, again, manual only lens. Um, that I love to use with my Canon R7 for getting Milky Way shots. It gives you just an incredibly wide view and the fisheye effect is super cool if you're able to center up the Milky Way on the frame. Um, it just gives you a really awesome effect. And I actually recently ordered the 7.5 millimeter TT Artisan's F2 lens. So that's another option and it's actually cheaper, believe it or not, than the 11 millimeter lens, um, even though it has a wider aperture. So when we're talking about aperture and I'm saying numbers like f2.8 and f2 the aperture refers to how much light the lens can bring in at any given time and the lower the f number the more light the lens can let in so generally speaking with astrophotography and really with 
any type of photography, the lower that F number, the better. That being said, we generally like to stop down the lens a little bit to sharpen up the stars, particularly with these less, or I should say, you know, more inexpensive lenses. Um, you generally need to stop down the lens just a little bit, like maybe F 2.8 or F 4. Um, and it's going to sharpen up your stars a whole lot and just give you a better overall image quality with less vignetting around the edges. Um, so just something to keep in mind with that. Uh, but yeah, the TT Artisan 11 millimeter goes for a, just about $200. And then that 7.5 millimeter can be had for just about $120. So again, these are incredibly inexpensive lenses by, uh, you know, photography standards. And I mean like dirt cheap and they're very well made. They're all metal. I have just zero complaints about these lenses. I'm actually holding mine right now looking at it and I'm kind of blown away uh, by the quality of this lens. So I, I can highly recommend um, all three of those lenses, uh, the Rokinon, the two TT artisans. And then, you know, if you have a kit lens, you know, maybe you've got like a 24 to 70 kit lens that your Canon came with or your Nikon came with. You can absolutely use that to get started. I don't want you to think that like they're impossible to use uh, for Milky Way photography. You can just get better results with a dedicated lens with a lower aperture. Usually the kit lenses are more like F5.6 to F8 or something along those lines. Um, whereas something like the lenses I just mentioned generally have like a F2 or sometimes even F1. 1.8 that can just let in a lot more light so it's just a lot better for nighttime photography because they let in so much more light so just a couple of things to keep in mind all right so we've got all of our gear we've got a tripod we've got a ball head or a smartphone mount if we're going to use our smartphone We've got a DSLR or mirrorless camera, and then we've got an awesome wide angle lens to go with it. Now, we've got all of our gear. Now we need the Milky Way. So how do we get the Milky Way? Technically speaking, it's in the sky all year round. What you see when you look up at the night sky and see the Milky Way is actually the Virgo arm of our spiral galaxy. Now, that being said, there are certain times of the year when it is best in the night sky. For those of us that are in the northern hemisphere, that is going to be during the summer months. For those of us that are in the southern hemisphere, that is going to be, well, for you, it's in the summer months, but that's going to be November, December, January, February. And then again, the northern hemisphere, it's going to be June, July, August, September. So we know when we want to set up. Now we need to know where we want to set up. So the short answer is we want to set up somewhere that's really dark. The uh, more in-depth answer is we want to go to lightpollutionmap.info and find our home address and then look for an area within a reasonable distance of driving that is as dark as possible. So you can check the scale on the website to find out you know, if you see anything that's blue in the area, then that's where you want to head to. But anything that's green is going to be acceptable. Essentially, though, in order to see the Milky Way, you really want to be in at least a Bortle 4, maybe 5 area. You're kind of pushing it at a 5, but ideally like a Bortle 4 or lower. Now, that being said, you do not need to be able to see the Milky Way with your own two eyes to be able to photograph it. Far from it. However, 
that being said, you know, the darker the area that you're in, the more high quality the photo is going to be that you come out with. You know, if you could go to an area that had zero light pollution, you could take one 10 second exposure and I bet you it would look a hundred times better than something that was, you know, 50 stacked one minute exposures from my Bortle 7 front yard. I probably mentioned it uh, four or five times at this point, but just in case this is your first episode, when I say Bortle, we're referring to the uh, Bortle light pollution scale, where a Bortle 1 is the darkest area that you can be in, and a Bortle 10 is Midtown Manhattan. Uh, where you can't see a single star, maybe Jupiter or the moon, and that's about it. So a Bortle 4 is where the Milky Way starts to appear to the naked eye, and ideally that's really where you want to be if you're doing something like Milky Way photography. So you want to find a dark area, and you want to find maybe something that has an interesting, you know, something in the foreground. Maybe it's a cool-looking building. Maybe it's a lake. Maybe it's a mountain. Uh, maybe it's just yourself. I, some of my absolute favorite Milky Way photos that I've taken are just me and my friend standing in the foreground of the shot looking up at the Milky Way. So if you don't have any cool things that you can put in your shot, put yourself in it and I guarantee you it'll be really cool. So that's again, some of my absolute favorite shots are done that way. Some other things that you can bring along with you for your Milky Way shot trip would be anything that is, you know, low light, but produce is light. Uh, glow sticks or glow balls are a really cool thing to use in nightscape photography. Uh, so you can like take a glow stick and place it, you know, 50 meters ahead in the frame, but on the ground to light up one small portion of the foreground. And that can just add an interesting element, uh, you know, to your shot. Uh, me and my friend had a fun time trying to paint our initials in a photo do C plus C because we're both Chris and uh, we kind of struggled with that. We have a better plan uh, for next time when we go down and try to attack that. We're going to bring two light balls because we only had one and we were trying to pass it between ourselves and it didn't work out too well. But just to give you some ideas, you know, glow sticks and glow balls and those types of things can add some really interesting elements to your photos. Another thing you're going to want to keep in mind is batteries. So if you're using a smartphone, uh, maybe you're going to want to bring an extra battery pack with you. You know, an external 20,000 milliamp hour battery pack would be a great idea to have. Something that can do fast charging would be ideal because you want to be able to charge it faster than it's draining. If you're using a, uh, you know, a camera like a mirrorless or a DSLR, make sure that you have two or three extra batteries because if you're going to be taking hundreds and hundreds of shots of the night sky, chances are you're going to drain that battery at some point and you're going to need to swap it out. That being said, my uh, Canon R7 seems to do really well with, uh, you know, nightscape photography. When I'm taking shots, it can take hundreds without the battery dying on me. But, you know, your mileage is going to vary depending on what camera you're using. Um, so definitely make sure that you have a couple of extra batteries with you. There is nothing more irritating than driving three hours to a dark site and then only getting to shoot for an hour because your battery dies and you don't have an extra one with you. So make sure you bring extra batteries. All right. So we're at our dark site. Uh, we've got all of our gear. 
let's go ahead and set up our tripod first. So as far as the height is concerned, this is going to vary a little bit. And what you're going to have to take into consideration is whether or not you want the ground to be in the shot. And what I mean by that is you're going to need to take a couple of test shots and maybe, you know, heighten or lower the tripod, depending on how much of the ground you want in the frame. Uh, if you have like a lake for example, that you want to get into the frame of the shot, you might need to, you know, lower the tripod down a little bit more. Um, or, you know, if you're shooting a tree, then you might want to extend it up a little bit more. This is where the ball head can be just an excellent tool to have because you can basically set the tripod to whatever height you're comfortable with and then just adjust the ball head to whichever angle you prefer to have the camera at. All right, now that we're at our site, there's actually one other tool that I forgot to mention that could be incredibly handy in this endeavor, and that would be an intervalometer. It just occurred to me as I was looking through my camera bag thinking about what I'm going to do when I'm doing a Milky Way shoot that an intervalometer can come in really handy. So what an intervalometer does is it essentially is programmed by you to say I want to take this many shots for this length, go ahead and do it without having to physically touch the camera at all. Uh, these are awesome tools and they're extremely inexpensive. You can get one on Amazon for about $20. I'll go ahead and I will link the intervalometer that I personally use uh, in the show notes for you so you can pick one of those up. That being said, uh, you don't really have to have one of these. It is a very nice tool to have and I would highly recommend it. It'll make your life a lot easier. But if you get out to your site and you do not have an intervalometer, it's not the end of the world. You can still make do uh, because most cameras have a built-in feature with a countdown timer. And the reason that you need a countdown timer or an intervalometer is because when you press your shutter button, you will be physically moving the camera. And when you're focusing on something as small as a star, any movement at all is going to cause that star to move a little bit and it's going to ruin the sharpness of your photo. All right, let's talk cameras. So let's go ahead and pull out your camera. If you've got a uh, DSLR or a mirrorless camera, uh, these settings, they could vary a little bit from manufacturer to manufacturer. I personally have a Canon camera, uh, but these should be similar for all cameras. And, you know, if I say something and it doesn't work on your specific camera, just do a quick Google search for how to look up that particular feature. And I'm sure you'll be able to find it. There is a whole wealth of knowledge available online for all these things so you won't have any uh, shortness of information but the first thing that you want to do is put your camera in manual mode so if you have a dial on top of your camera that you can twist and turn with different letters on it in different modes you want to find the one that says m usually it'll say m and m stands for manual so what manual allows you to do is tweak every setting of the camera as far as the length of the exposure, the f-stop of the exposure, and the ISO of the exposure. Now, which settings you choose are going to vary a little bit depending on your specific setup. Um, if you have a wider lens, you might be able to get away with a little bit longer of an exposure, whereas if you have a narrower field of view, you will have to do a little bit of a shorter exposure. But all things being equal, uh, we'll start with settings that should generally work for any length 
lens that's 24 millimeters or lower. So 24 millimeters, 16 millimeters, 10 millimeters, or even wider than that. And then from there, we can adjust it to make it, uh, you know, as long as possible. Okay, so the first thing that we want to do is open up the aperture of the lens. Now, this is something that you'll most likely have to do depending on the lens on your lens. If you got one of the fully manual lenses that we talked about earlier, then the aperture is something that you adjust on the lens itself. So you're going to find a little uh, scale of numbers. It'll say, you know, 2.8, 4, 5.6, 8, 11, 16. Go ahead and turn that all the way until it's 2.8. And you should notice the image get brighter and brighter on your screen because it's letting in more and more light. If you have a uh, fully automatic lens, then you can set the f-stop within the camera itself by uh, you know clicking in your menu and actually adjusting the f-stop on screen. So after you do that, the next thing that you wanna adjust is the ISO. So the ISO is gonna vary greatly depending on you know which camera and which sensor that you're using. But for our purposes, let's go ahead and just start at ISO 3200. We can move this up or down depending on what the picture comes out like um, after the first couple of exposures, but let's just go ahead and start with 3200. All right, so we've got our f-stop as low as possible. Uh, so that's the aperture again. We've got that wide open, and then we've got our ISO at 3200. The next thing that we wanna adjust is gonna be the shutter length. So this is how long the camera is actually going to expose for. So it's basically how long you're taking the photo for. This is gonna vary depending on how long of a focal length you're using. Generally speaking though, I would think we should start with eight to 10 seconds, and then we can check for star trails and see if there are any. And then if there are not, we can increase that exposure time a little bit. And if there are, we can back off. However, if we're using a, a lens that is, you know, 16 millimeters or lower, you can pretty much guarantee an eight second exposure is going to be perfectly fine. All right. So we've got pretty much all of our settings, right? The next thing that we need to do is actually focus on a star. So this would be a good time to go ahead and point towards the southern part of the sky. So if you don't know what the southern part of the sky is, open up a compass app on your smartphone and I want you to go ahead and look towards the south. This is assuming you are in the northern hemisphere. If you're in the southern hemisphere, you're going to look north. So let's just assume it's July. You're in the northern hemisphere. You want to look south to see the core of the Milky Way. Now, if you're in a dark enough area, you should be able to see it with your own two eyes. It should be pretty apparent uh, where the brightest portion of it is. But if you're trying this from your, you know, suburban uh, yard, then that's perfectly fine. Just go ahead and make your way towards that uh, southern portion. If you know Polaris, uh, you know, if you've ever polar aligned, for example, the North Star, then just turn around and look towards the opposite end of the sky from Polaris. Okay, so once we're facing south, let's go ahead and find a star to focus on. So go ahead and point your camera, you know, up towards the sky and find a brighter star. And what you want to do is press your zoom in button on your camera and go ahead and zoom in as much as you can. On my camera, I can do a 10X zoom. So find one of the brighter stars and zoom in, and then you should have a ring on your lens that allows you to manually twist it to adjust the focus. And what you wanna do is just twist that ring until you can get that star 
as small as possible. There is a device that you can buy that's called a Batonov mask that you can put over your lens and then take a photo of a star and it'll put spikes through the star. And when you get them perfectly uh, perpendicular to one another, uh, then you'll know you're in perfect focus. But for our purposes in a wide field Milky Way shot, just get the star as small as possible. And once you get it there, then you should be in good shape. All right, so we've got all our settings correct. We've got ISO 3200, we've got F2, and we've got a 10-second exposure, right? Okay, and we're focused on our star. Let's go ahead and take our first test shot. But before we do that, we are either going to have to, you know, see if we've got an intervalometer so we can press that shutter button without having to physically touch the camera, or we're going to have to go into the settings of our camera and change the shutter mode to have a delay. So your camera should have a delay mode. So, you know, the kind of mode that you would use so you can press the shutter and then run around and get into the picture yourself. That should be in the settings of the camera under your shooting modes. Uh, for me, I just set a two second delay. So once you find that setting, go ahead and turn that on and you can do a two second delay. Go ahead and press the shutter button. It's going to count down two, one, and then Bang, it's going to start exposing. You'll see your little red light turn on on the camera, and then it's going to count 10 seconds, and then you'll hear it stop. So once it finishes, then you're going to have your first exposure. And if you've done everything correctly, and this is your very first time taking a Milky Way shot, you might be kind of blown away at what you see. I'll never forget my first trip to a dark site with my best friend. He brought his Nikon camera and he had his, uh, you know, first astrophotography lens with him and he had never taken a Milky Way shot before. And I walked him through the exact same process that I just walked you through. And after he got done taking that first image, his jaw was literally open and he said, my camera just took that shot. And I said, heck yeah, it did, man, because it really is mind blowing when you see, you know, what your camera is capable of in terms of taking photos of the Milky Way. But it gets so much better from there because what we can do is take multiple exposures and then stack them on top of each other to bring out even more detail. So the next thing you're going to want to do is check and see if your stars are sharp. So you took, let's say, a 10 second exposure the first time. Zoom in after you've taken that photo. Zoom in really close on one of those stars and see if it's sharp. What you want to avoid at all costs is star trailings. So that is when a star appears elongated. If you see that, that means that your exposure is a little bit too long and you need to back it off a little bit. So, you know, if at 10 seconds you noticed elongation in your stars, try backing it down to eight seconds. If you're using a 16 millimeter lens, you should be perfectly fine at eight to 10 seconds. And what I usually recommend people do is just adjust it one second up and down until you get to where you're seeing elongated stars. And then maybe, you know, get to where your maximum exposure is without elongation and then back it off one second just to be safe because you want to make sure that you get sharp stars all night long because it's really important that we get sharp stars. So uh, from here, you've got a couple of options. Um, you can do a time lapse of the Milky Way, which is one of my favorite things to do. So you could, uh, you know, line it up to where you have, you know, something cool in the foreground and then you're taking 
one shot after another of the Milky Way all night long. And then if you were to stitch those together the next morning, you would have a time lapse that shows the Milky Way completely crossing overhead. Another thing you can do, which is my uh, personal favorite, would be to stack those Milky Way photographs on top of each other. So maybe you take 60 10 second exposures and then stack them all on top of each other in a program like Deep Sky Stacker or even Photoshop. And then you can take a really nice foreground image of say you and a friend looking up at the Milky Way and use that for your foreground shot. And when I say foreground shot, uh, just to be clear, what you would want to do is take a shot uh, when you're out and about at your Milky Way site, keep your camera in the exact same orientation that it's in, but go ahead and focus it on whatever item you're looking at in the foreground, whether that be, you know, a building, a tree, the lake, you and your friend, uh, focus that own, uh, you know, whoever it is, and then take that shot and then you can save that shot and then lay it on top of your other stacked photos. And that way both will appear to be, you know, in focus. Whereas if you were to just, you know, take a shot of you and your friend standing in front of the Milky Way with it being uh, focused on the Milky Way, then you guys would appear a little bit blurry and it just wouldn't be as cool. So still very cool, but not as cool as it is if you can get yourself in focus. So uh, definitely something else cool you can try. Remember to play around with the light elements. Like I said, if you've got glow sticks or light balls, try putting those in the foreground of the image. While you're taking a 10 second exposure, you can move lights around and see you know, how that reacts with your camera sensor. That's another interesting thing to do. Some people like to point a laser up at the night sky, uh, You know, point at the Milky Way. If you are going to do something like that, just be very very aware of planes in the area. I can't stress that enough. If you see a plane anywhere in the vicinity, do not point a laser anywhere near the sky. Um, it's just too dangerous and not worth risking people's lives for your entertainment. So um, I personally don't point lasers in the night sky unless I know there are no planes in the vicinity, but that is something that you can do as well. Um, so a lot of different options. So, uh, you know, stacked photography with your Milky Way shots is really cool. And then time lapses are really cool. Another awesome thing you can do with just your tripod, smartphone, or DSLR or mirrorless camera are star trail photos. So I'm sure you've seen a star trail photo. It's where these beautiful circular patterns are happening on the uh, photo. And maybe you wonder, you know, how does that happen? So the easiest way that you can do that is to point your camera directly at the North Star, which is Polaris. So Polaris does move, but it moves very little relative to us and what appears to be a very small circle. Um, and to the naked eye, it just appears to be still all night. And all the other stars appear to move in a circle around it. So what you can do is point that same tripod with a camera on top set up directly at Polaris and you can actually take much longer exposures because star trails aren't going to bother you now like they did earlier because we don't need to get sharp shots. It's okay if the stars trail and say you want to do a 60 second exposure and then let's say we want to do a 60 second exposure but we want to do it a hundred times so a hundred minutes of 60 second exposures and then what you do is you take those photos home 
home and you load them up in Photoshop as layers. And then if you can stack those layers on top of each other, all of those star trails appear to move as one long trail and you get this beautiful photograph of star trails. So Milky Way photography and star trail photography are two incredible entry points into astrophotography that you can do for very little money. You don't have to have, you know, five, six thousand dollars to build a rig. And that's the whole point of this episode is just to illustrate to you guys what is possible uh, with just a tripod and a camera. Um, some of my absolute favorite times have been out with a friend taking Milky Way shots. You know, let's uh, point up at the night sky together, get in cool poses and get underneath the uh, the break in the Milky Way or try to line it up perfectly over these trees. And there's just a million different ways you can go with it. And the first time that you get out and do it yourself, I'm sure you'll see what I mean, because it's just really addictive. Once you start taking, you know, those beautiful images of the Milky Way, you just want to see what you can do next and uh it's just really fun so i thoroughly enjoy doing it i cannot wait for summertime to get here i'm uh you know uh, orion has already passed the meridian once it's dark outside right now uh for us in charlotte uh in the northern hemisphere i should say um so we know galaxy season's right around the corner and I've said it before, I'll say it again, galaxy season's the most boring season for me as an astrophotographer. Uh, but that being said, there are some really cool targets that you can still shoot. And uh, I'm actually going to tell you about one that I happened to find in Stellarium while I was looking through. Um, last night, I found a really interesting target that's going to be coming up, I believe, just in the next couple of weeks. Um, give me just one second while I pull that up. All right, so... That target, and this is actually going to be my recommendation for the week since, uh, you know, galaxy season's right around the corner and a lot of us are going to be uh, kind of struggling for cool things to photograph in the night sky on March 9th. So that's coming up in just the next couple of weeks. Uh, that falls on a weekend, luckily. So it'll be a Saturday. Uh, the moon should be fairly small by then at, uh, let's see, 2353. So 1153 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, so you can uh, turn that to whatever your local time is. Comet 62P uh, Suchanan, forgive me if I mispronounced that, is going to be uh, passing directly through Markarian's chain. And I'm personally going to be doing like a super wide field shot of this, and I think it's going to be hopefully a really interesting target to photograph in the night sky. Um, I'm hoping I can get, you know, a really cool solid shot of the comet itself and then get, you know, several hours exposure of all of the galaxies in the area of Markarian's chain. I'm going to try to go for like a really wide field shot on this one. I don't know how wide field I'm going to go quite yet. I'm hoping that I'll be able to do a few test exposures the, the nights before leading up to it. But that is a, uh, a really cool comet that's going to be passing directly through the area that is Markarian's chain. Um, I actually found that on Stellarium while I was looking for cool targets uh, in the upcoming spring season. Um, comets are, you know, something that are always going by in one way or another, and it's just something fun that I think a lot of people tend to not think about because we 
get focused on things like nebulae and galaxies. Don't forget that comets are really fun to photograph as well. And at any given time, there's usually a few worth looking at. So Comet 62P is passing through Markarian's chain on March 9th, 2024 at 11.53 Eastern Standard Time. So definitely check that out if you get a chance to. And uh, before we wrap up, I do want to say uh, I realized that I kind of covered all the settings for uh, cameras, but didn't necessarily get into the deep settings for smartphones. There are a wealth of different applications that you can use for smartphones, whether it be your you know built-in camera app on your phone, depending on what it is. Um, and there's also different camera apps on the app stores that you can get. And it just varies so much between iPhone and Android that I could probably list camera apps all day long. You would be best to do just a little bit of research and find out what the best astrophotography camera app is uh, for your particular phone. If you're using a newer Samsung device, the uh, the built-in camera has a pretty awesome astrophotography mode that will work very well for Milky Way shots. And if you're using an iPhone, uh, the built-in camera can do excellent long exposures as well. And again, as long as you get it set up on that tripod, uh, with a really good smartphone mount adapter. And again, I'll list that in the show notes for you. You should be in really good shape. And if you really enjoy doing that with a smartphone and you like the, the photos that you come out with, uh, then maybe you could consider looking into getting a camera. And again, something like a Canon Rebel you can get for 500 bucks. And that's a great entry level to get into the hobby and it'll, it'll grow with you. You can eventually hook it up to a telescope if you want. Um, and it can just be used for a ton of different things in astrophotography. And even an entry-level DSLR is just going to give you so many more options than something like a smartphone can as far as uh, Milky Way shots and astrophotography is concerned. So once you get your uh, shots home and you're ready to process them, there's a couple of different routes you can take as far as, you know, getting them stacked on top of each other. Uh, you can check out Deep Sky Stacker. That's an excellent tool for stacking images on top of each other. I would look at Photoshop and look at their import layers into stack functionality. There are a lot of great tutorials that can show you how to do that with Milky Way shots online. Um, that's an excellent way to stack those photos and get more detail. And the idea here is if you take one 10 second photo, um, that gives you, you know, a good bit of detail. But if you do that a hundred times and then stack them all on top of each other, you're going to get a whole lot of detail. And that's ideally what you want to do. So, uh, definitely check those out. And again, if you want to hear more about processing, we did cover that quite in depth in an earlier episode. So be sure to go back and listen to that episode if that's something that you're interested in. So all that being said, Milky Way season is right around the corner. Uh, just a couple more months and it'll be here. You'll be able to wake up early in the morning, come, you know, April or so and start seeing the Milky Way. And then before you know it, it'll be June. That's when I have my first dark sky trip of the year planned. Uh, me and a friend of mine are going to be doing our second annual trip to our dark sky trip 
for Milky Way photography and astrophotography. And I am very much looking forward to that. You can plan ahead yourself if that's something that you want to do. I find that, uh, you know, planning ahead and booking a hotel room, if you're going somewhere far away, well in advance, or even a campsite, you know, depending on how remote you're going, is an excellent way to give you something to look forward to on the calendar. Um, you know, day-to-day -day life can get so monotonous for us. And I find that astronomy is able to break that monotony up for me quite a bit and give me something to look forward to. And the changing of the seasons is definitely something that I look forward to. So I really hope that you've enjoyed this week's episode. Our listener base continues to grow each and every week. I actually had uh, my first random person comment on one of my photos saying that they love the podcast this week. That really touched me. Um, it's so cool being able to, you know, connect with you guys outside of the podcast, obviously. And I just uh, have loved making this podcast so far. And I really look forward to continuing to make it each and every week for you guys. So look forward to uh, next week's episode. We will be back with you soon. And until then, clear skies. again i'm running out of podcasts here all right i got one more for you check out darknet diaries if you're a bit of a geek like me you will love it darknet diaries all right that's it have a good one